Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Jason, and you'll hear from our co-host, Rutger, very, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are his or hers alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company he or she works for. You know, I might think a highly engaged fan is someone who's posted about me more than 100 times, regardless of the amount of reach they have on socials. So even if they had 2 million followers, if they're posting about me 100, 150 times, I'm probably pretty sure they're a pretty engaged fan, unless it's bad posts about me, which you can see pretty clearly. (laughs) We show those like right away. Today's guest is the Chief Technology Officer at The Orchard, Jacob Fowler. The Sony-owned company is, quote, a pioneering music distribution company and top-ranked video network, local reps in more than 40 global markets. From digital retailers and physical stores to performance right societies, The Orchard's partnerships help amplify your reach and revenue across multiple business verticals. Graduating from the University of Michigan with a degree in political science and Southeast Asian studies, Fowler first spent three years at 2U, a publicly traded educational tech company. Living from a role in admissions to business analyst, it was then his first stint as product manager that transitioned him to the Orchard in 2016. The avid Red Sox fan then rapidly worked his way up the chain to director of product to SVP for engineering and product, then to his current role as CTO starting in February 2020. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Truck podcast, Jacob Fowler. Hi, Jacob. Hey, guys. Thanks again for having me. Uh, that was quite the intro and very appreciated. Um, I, I didn't even know some of those things about me, so I don't know how, how we found them all, but I'm sure they're scattered amongst the web. <laughs> they are. We, we, we like to try to do our research. So nice. uh, we always got the Red Sox thing right, correct? Yeah, and, and at least Google knows who I am, so that's always good. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, Jacob, we wanted to start a little bit kind of how you got to where you were. And so it seems there were in our research, like three inflection points in your career, if you will. So uh, we think like one is when you graduated poli-sci, political science, and and Southeast Asian studies, but then started at 2U. Another one was when you first took on a product manager role at 2U. And then thirdly, when you kind of jumped from, you know, the educational sector to music. Can you uh, walk us through a little bit what was going through your mind at, you know, each of these points in your career? Yeah, so... Probably good to start with college. So yeah, undergrad was obviously not in engineering or really even a, you know, technology or kind of quantitative thinking uh, role slash degree. And I think always for me, I was kind of just interested in whatever was uh, out there from a political science perspective or Southeast Asian studies. I think really Southeast Asian studies interest grew um, in large part due to a professor, his name's Professor Alan Hicken, uh, who I believe is still there. And he had kind of showed me how you take a a quantitative view on um, political science and how you use statistics to make a lot of inferences and decisions. And so while I was there, I had some independent studies where I started toying around with, you know, plugging data into SQL um, and then querying that data, election results, things like that, that you could, um, that were publicly available and downloadable. So I think that's where the interest in tech really grew. And while at to you, I was in a admissions role, but started, we were working primarily with Salesforce. And um, I think for me, it was, there was all these workflows that we had in Salesforce. And as you know, an admissions 
uh, person at the company, you started picking up on things like, well, this could be automated, this could be automated. And then you start Googling Salesforce to see like, how does Salesforce work? And then I started clicking where they said like the admin council of where you can edit all these workflows and realize I didn't have permissions. So, so um, I think mostly I was in DC at that point and suggested to my manager all these improvements. And he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but yeah, we have this technology team in New York City. They, there's a team of Salesforce guys and, and gals that, that work on the product. So why don't you talk to them and you kind of figure, figure out like if any of this is even possible. So in doing that, ended up uh, you know, getting to know that team, working with them. That led to an interview with the team, which led to then being hired over into kind of a Salesforce analyst admin engineering role. I think they call them now over there, Salesforce engineers, where you're building out a lot of those custom workflows and, you know, writing what they call apex triggers. So just kind of, you know, what we would probably refer to in the software engineering world is scripting today to automate a lot of workflows. So that was kind of my first foray into technology and then realized very quickly, you know, that my passion was probably more on the, the product side and figuring out business problems and, you know, translating that into tech solutions. So moved into a product manager role there. And I think that was kind of, you know, the the two big inflection points I'd say of just pivoting on a career. And that at to you also led to meeting Masha Thomas, who had was a uh, engineering employee over at to you and then went to the orchard. She kind of talked to me, recruited me over to the orchard and said like, look, it's a great opportunity. You'll come in as a product manager and learn a bunch from the folks here. It's the music industry, you love music. And we've, we're just doing a lot of cool things with the modern technology stack. And so I was like, oh, I really don't know if I want to leave. Like, to you just went public. There's all this cool stuff happening there. But you know, ultimately, she talked me into it. And I think it was the right decision. And I thank her every day for that. Is Masha still at the orchard? She's not. She uh, she moved away and went to, to Amazon, though. Still stay in touch all the time. And gotcha. we'd love to have her back at any point. Yeah, that's great. Um so what was your uh, involvement just personally with music prior to moving over to the ocean? Yeah, I'd say involvement uh, was from a listener side solely because I am not creative from that aspect of my life. But okay. always so grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, went to a venue called Intersection, uh, saw a lot of shows there. I'd say it started in you know, the, the teenage angst years, like, like most folks going to the, the all emo shows and, and whatnot. And so sure. spent a lot of time there. And I think just going throughout college um, and then even into my career now, I've just always really, you know, loved music, listening to music. I was always, you know, primarily I'd say after that, you know, teenage angst years, I was pretty predominantly listening to, you know, indie, the indie side, love sub pop, right? Love mom and pop, love all those indie record labels, Fat Possum. So I was listening to a lot of their music and yeah, I'd say just felt the love kind of continued and worked its way into a job here at the Orchard. Did uh, your political science or kind of educational sector experience, do you feel like that kind of comes up at all, you know, ever since you've kind of transitioned over to the entertainment industry? You know, I don't think it comes up, but I think it's interesting because a lot of folks in the music industry like always knew they wanted to be in the music industry. Uh, and that was whether they went to school for it, whether they were a musician. Um, so I think maybe it's almost like a, a distinct uh, 
different viewpoint almost of, I don't look at it per se from like a music background. I look at it just purely from a tech background on the products we're building and like, how do you interact with users? And I think, I think that is helpful sometimes because you don't come into it with, you know, the scope of all the music background, you come into it looking of like, well, here's how we solved this, this problem in the education industry. Here's how I looked at problems when I was in college and whatnot. So just a different view. Yeah, an ability to do like a like a first principles approach type of mindset, which is pretty yeah. cool. Um, and I I don't think we can move on without asking about Southeast Asian studies. Does that come up at all? Because obviously, you know, the Orchard is such a huge company and um, is I'm sure probably active in the in the region to a to a large extent. So, is that helpful at all? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the the focus was political science, and then like had just taken a lot of courses in Southeast Asian studies, and so I think. What's cool for me is all of these countries I read so much about, Orchard has an international presence there. And I've been lucky enough, you know, through my career or through personal as I've graduated and moved moved on in my career to travel to a lot of those countries. So I think it's it's bittersweet in the sense of like you're studying a lot about these territories and these regions and you don't really have a feel for what it's like. You know, you're reading about financial crisis in Thailand in 1997 and sitting in a classroom in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you have no idea like what the country's like, what the culture's like, like how are people reacting to that? And then going there, you know, eight years later, it's pretty cool. So yeah, I'd say that's probably the, uh, the, you know, most surreal thing about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's something that we like to try to write about is, you know, all these different regions of the world that are really starting to play uh, um, a huge role in the streaming scene for sure. Um, it's something we should probably know more about historically and culturally. You're very well positioned to do that, um, which is pretty cool. So, okay, The Orchard, a huge company, um, a lot of different business functions as you know we were reading about earlier. So that's like the website des- description. I was, I was wondering if maybe you can kind of take the position from of like a 16 year old, just starting to put out their own music for the first time, who knows nothing about the music business. Could you describe a little bit what the orchard does to them? Yeah, you know, I and it's funny. I like when I was first interviewing and applying for the job, I don't think I even fully understood it, even with Masha <laughs> explaining it to me. And I think like the big thing is Orchard takes a combination of industry expertise, technology, and really focuses focuses on the creative community. So that being artists and labels. And at the end of the day, what we enable that, so that's like the, I'd say very theoretical kind of the view of it. But when it comes down to the brass tacks of it, right? We offer artists and labels services to get their music out to the world today. And whether we're getting that out from a physical standpoint, so you're talking about, you know, CDs, vinyl being available and different retail stores across the world. If you're talking about making sure someone goes on Spotify and searches for your song, they're able to find it. Uh, Whether it's making sure that you're able to have one of your tracks synced on a new Netflix series. I know Chartmetric does a lot of work um, of showing data on the sync space. So I think when folks are curious, like, how does it get there? A lot of the times, like Orchard does have a whole sync licensing team that's helping there. Um, Whether it's making sure your video is up on YouTube and being monetized correctly, And then it it comes down to the other things like showing you data that comes back from all of these places, whether it's, you know, how, what does your stock look like from a physical perspective? Uh, What playlists have you been added to and how many streams are you getting from that playlist? How has that contributed to social growth? So I think really at the end of it, the, the orchard in one sentence, the goal is bring all the content into the system in an easy way for you as a user to make sure you've got it all in one place, distribute that out to the world 
make sure we're providing all of the services that go along with that, such as marketing to different partners, making sure your stock is your stock levels are at the places they need to be, making sure you're monetized on YouTube, and then giving you that feedback and data transparent tools. So this is going to be hard to do uh, in one question, but uh, this is the challenge we lay before you. So as CTO, so Chief Technology Officer for The Orchard, what are a few, can you describe a, from an overview kind of perspective, a few of the major projects that you oversee? A few of the names that are, that are coming up here is uh, The Orchard Workstation, uh, BACON, which I just love that acronym, by the way, um, and Orchard Go, which actually we'll, we'll talk more about a little bit, but and any other kind of products that you, know, you kind of oversee and let us know how they, those kind of interconnect. Yeah, so I think you can take it from the workflow concept of, of getting music out into the world. So what we're really in charge of is all of the tools, call them content tools, for making sure your audio files, uh, your artwork assets, your metadata, that that's not only as clean as possible, right? Uh, we all know that the music industry, metadata isn't our like expertise, we'll just say. We've got lots of duplicate metadata out there. So we try to do as much as we possibly can to help you get a clean version of your release out into the world. There's um, a tool that's in there called Vector. You probably read about that as well. Like the Orchard has a really scalable delivery tool that helps ensure we get that out to all of these partners in the most timely way possible. And so that's kind of the, we'll call it the content tool side. Then you've got, once your music is out in the marketplace and in the world, how are people reacting to it? What's happening? And there's, that's then where you bring in our analytics suite of tools. So what those tools are going to do is things like, I was kind of hitting on it earlier. What playlists have you been added to and how many streams from that playlist are coming from, uh, or how many folks, how many streams are coming from a particular playlist versus how many streams are coming from someone going and searching for your song on a platform versus how many streams are coming from someone saving it. So they've saved your album or they've, you know, save that particular song and you're going back and listening to it. So I think those are the really key insights we have for people of how kind of the industry is reacting to your content on platform. But there's also things that happen, and this is you know, through tools like Chartmetric or the data that we're getting in partnership with some of these um, products and services, such that what is your social audience um, look like and how are they reacting to your music? So when we see a single that comes out, are we also seeing social growth? Are we seeing fans interacting with that single and reposting it all over the place? So it's a lot of things where you try to take all of this data that's out there in the world and put it in a really easily digestible format for users. And so that easily digestible comes from not only the analytics tools, but if you think of the mobile experience we have with Orchard Go, that's where you really want to be able to give users a very digestible experience while they're on the move. You don't want to overload them with data. You want quick, actionable insights. So that's what we really tried to do there. And I think that hones in on the majority of it. And then that last piece is just from a monthly perspective, getting paid, right? That's that's most important. We always want the creatives to make sure that they're, they're getting money for the work that they're putting out there. And so providing tools like we have the Orchard Workstation royalties to see on a monthly basis how much you have them paid. And then uh, one that we are actually launching in beta here in two days, I guess. It's Tuesday, right? Yeah. Nice. Um, two days where you can then start making payments to artists or collaborators. So let's say someone is remixer on your track and you want to make sure they get a certain percent split of that revenue coming through. You can automatically set all of that up in, the, in our workstation today. Super awesome. I said bacon. We got to describe it oh, yeah. real quick. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'll make sure because this comes from before my time even that I, I get the uh, the acronym correct. I believe it's Bulk Automated Claims Orchard Network. Uh, so essentially just making sure um, under the orchards, you know, multi-channel network on YouTube, we are collecting all of our clients' videos to then be able to make sure we can, you know, monetize and market them correctly for the, for those clients. And so it's, it's been around for quite some time, I think, you know, definitely over five years at this point, but one of those tools that will never lose its luster because of its name. Names are so important. Love it. Thank you. So I wanted to drill down a little bit into the Orchard Go app. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about like who can access it, what it means for the Orchard writ large, and what you guys are trying to do for artists and their teams. Man, all the, all the questions I should just have ready at my fingertips. So hopefully I've got <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I'll start with the kind of beginning of Orchard Go and then how it's evolved over time and where we see it going. We at first realized, you know, we needed to get a mobile app out there because we had we work with all of these labels and artists who are constantly on the go. And and while the workstation tool is awesome, you can log in from anywhere. It's translated into gosh, 12 languages at this point. It's got a bunch of currency offerings, like all of that's great. But if you're running a label, you're likely, well, in pre-COVID times, out at a bunch of shows, constantly on the move, and you want quick insights into what's happening across your label without needing to you know, pop open a laptop while sitting on the tube or you know, the subway. And so that's where the, the concept of Orchard Go came. And our first goal was getting an MVP or a phase one out there that really met those needs. And so we started with basic things like streaming consumption data, which we kind of refer to as that private data. It's as a label, the data you get access to because you are distributing through someone to retail partners, be it Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Deezer, et cetera. So we got that out. We, we got quite a bit of adoption there and a ton of good feedback. And so one of the things we always try to do is maintain constant contact with all of our labels, artists, clients, everyone who's got feedback for us, we'll take it. We're happy to get as much of that as possible. And the big thing we started hearing was wanting more actionable data, but not just on that, what we would kind of call the private consumption data, more of this this theory and concept that we had started to kind of put a name around of public plus private data. And so that's marrying the world of all this private consumption data that we have access to um, as a distributor and get through that, but marrying it with that public's uh, data. And that's really social data, charts data, the data that everyone could go to a website and see or scrape and have access to, combining that one place. So that was the one big concept of it. And then the, the other big concept was fan engagement. And so we started seeing folks wanted to know who were their biggest fans, who's posting about them the most. Is it you know a radio station? Is it a really up and coming trendy blog that's posting like the concept of influencers, but more on a micro base. And I, I hate that term, so I won't say it again, I promise throughout this, throughout this call, we'll call it fans. But so that was the kind of inception of it. But then what started to happen was we realized a lot of the labels and, and partners that we work with wanted to give access to the artists that they were working with. Or if you know an artist was collaborating with someone, a producer, or had someone featured on a song, they want to be able then to have access to the application. So in terms of that question uh, that you had around who has access to it, it's really anyone who is a label partner, artist partner at the Orchard, 
and then anyone that they're collaborating with that they want to invite to it. So if you're a label and you're, you want to give your artists access to it, you can do that. If you're a label and one of your artists has access and they want to give access to a featuring artist, they can do that. Or if you're an artist, and you want to give access to everyone you've ever collaborated on track with, you could do that as well. So the, the big kind of underlying thing we did in the, the phase two of Orchard Go was rebuilt the entire permissions architecture and kind of hierarchy, which, you know, everyone from the business side is like, why is this taking so long? And it's, it's really hard to explain that until you actually launch it. And they're like, hey, you know that thing where you could never have, you know, get access to your artists for just a track? You can do that now. So we were pretty excited about it. And I don't know if that helps answer your question, but hopefully it does. Yeah, definitely. Um, so sort of on that note, I was watching a talk you gave in June about approaching products from a creator lens. Yes. And you explained that one of the primary problems you were trying to solve with the app um, in particular was emphasizing and simplifying metrics for fan engagement and like cross-platform influence. So like how is your social data driving streaming consumption, for example? Why should artists and their teams care about fan engagement and not just how many playlists one of their tracks was added to? Yeah, so that's kind of the age-old question. I feel like there's so many opinions on it, right? Um, so I'll try to just take, I'll try not to be too opinionated on it and more just like the the data that's available. I think the reason why we see it as important, um, you know, at the Orchard and particularly on our product team is that what tends to happen is fans react to something and that's why streams go up. So I think what's important as an artist or their team or a label is you'll see a spike in streams, but usually that's predated by something else. And that something else comes off platform. It's not like you see something on Spotify that's spiking really high. And sometimes you can trace it directly back to a playlist, which we had in the first version of the app. But a lot of the times it's because you went viral with some sort of social post or someone featured you and you someone featured your song and UGC content on TikTok or you know, YouTube or Facebook or any of these other platforms and that caused it. And so that's really where we felt the concept of marrying the public plus private data was really important. So you could see what drove that streaming consumption, not only so you could replicate it, but just so you knew, is this like a one-time thing or is that a strategy you want to incorporate in your marketing kind of plan next time around? So say an artist or an artist team doesn't have access to Orchard Go or any analytics platform. Can you recommend, or maybe they do, but can you recommend some signals or KPIs, um, and you can be as granular or as like theoretical as you want, that an artist might want to look out for when they're approaching their streaming and social data? Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. So one is just how are your fans reacting to your, to your socials, right? Like, are you seeing a boost there? Because what that's typically indicative, indicative of is that something's happening from a streaming perspective. And then you can kind of dig in from there. And, and I do think today, and there's a ton of tools out there and there's lots of ones that you can sign up for free. So if you don't have access to Orchard Go, um, there are free versions of things out there. I won't, you know, I know this isn't a chart metric advertisement, but I'll say, I know you guys have some trial versions. So I'd, I will I'd do a little advertising for you there, but I think it's a great tool where you can go get a lot of those insights in one place. But yeah, I think, I don't think there's any like secret formula or straightforward one, but I think it's try to see 
if fans are reacting from a social perspective, because that's usually indicative that something might be happening. So I know you mentioned you didn't want to say micro-influencer anymore, but in that same talk, you talked about um, one of the problems you were trying to sort of identify or solve was the difference between highly engaged fans, micro-influencers, and macro-influencers. Can you explain those distinctions and how you were able to identify each group and how knowing that might help an artist or an artist team? Yeah, so what we wanted to do was not um, set like standards for those groups, more of give the power to the user to, to create their own versions of those groups. So, you know, I might think a highly engaged fan is someone who's posted about me more than 100 times, regardless of the amount of reach they have on socials. So even if they had 2 million followers, if they're posting about me 100, 150 times, I'm probably pretty sure they're a pretty engaged fan, unless it's bad posts about me, which you can see pretty clearly. <laughs> we show those like right away. Um, so I think for us, it was more about creating this concept for you as a user to be able to filter and sort and create your own thresholds. You could say, I really only want to see who's talking about me the most. So just order it by who has mentioned me the most across social channels, because that's going to be a big, a big fan. And, um, and I think you can kind of start to group things on influencers are probably those with more followers or a big brand, right? That can actually collaborate with you on a brand where the micro concept, I think people create on their own or in macro, they might create on their own and fans, they might create on their own. So I think for us, it was more important to give them the ability to create their own groupings than for us to create them for them. I want to go a little, like a little bit uh, of a higher view in terms of kind of your position as, as CTO at the Orchard. So this is a role that you took over um, this year in February. Is that correct? Yeah, perfect timing. So right, <laughs> right before COVID-19, right before the epidemic really changed, uh, you know, just the world and the way we live our lives. So, you know, as a C-level leader within one of the top music companies in the world, how did you, how did this affect your priorities? One, you know, how did this affect the way you lead? And then two, just kind of as a person, what were you thinking? What was going on in your head and helped you navigate that? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, like one of the immediate shifts was, can Google Meet support everyone being remote immediately? And like, luckily that problem was for Google to solve who I felt fairly confident they would, they would figure it out. And, and, you know, good for us, they did. Um, but so I think in the immediate, it was all of a sudden shifting your attention to just like, everyone's remote now. Like, are we set up for that? And all of Orchard's tech's pretty much based in the cloud. So that was really nice and easy. We didn't have to, you know, do any large scale migrations from being on-prem to, to then in the cloud. So fingers crossed that that was, or I should, fingers uncrossed now, but early on was like, nothing's going to blow up here, right? Uh, so that was good. And I think the nice thing for our tech team was we already do have some remote folks throughout the U.S. We work with consulting partners all throughout Eastern Europe and India and then we also have a team, um, a full-time team in London, and then with some folks throughout the rest of Europe and Germany and Norway. So we were really used to working as a tech team remotely. And albeit, I'll say it actually early on, some of the findings were like it leveled the playing field a little bit because some of the folks who typically were like the one or two people on a call where they were dialed in and everyone else was sitting in a conference room, they're like, oh, it's much better because now that everyone's dialed in, a lot of the unintentional, unconscious things that people would do, 
no longer happen. Like if they were like, Hey, I can't hear you. People just kind of kept going until you like shouted, Hey, I can't hear you guys. Like the connection's not great. So I think it leveled it from that sense. And, and from a priority sense, luckily for us, we we've always had a roadmap that we've driven off every quarter. And so the roadmap pretty much stayed the same, not a lot pivoted. I think the, the one thing that did change was our kind of, um, you know, velocity and really, you know, desire to get the Orchard Go mobile app out as soon as possible. Because although people were at home at that point, so you're like, well, that's counterintuitive. They're not on the go anymore. Uh, that had all of the fan engagement data and audience data. So we knew that artists and labels would have more time to go through that and a lot more time to make insights and create those groupings that we were speaking of earlier of your types of fans. So that was probably the one thing that did, you know, change on the roadmap priority perspective. But other than that, we've been, you know, plugging away at the roadmap we've always had. Do you find, and this isn't necessarily with your particular experience at the orchard, but just you know, the way you view the way talent is kind of growing nowadays. Do you find that kind of the usual Silicon Valley verticals like social media or like transportation apps or, you know, fintech companies, do you find those still kind of draw that, you know, top talent? Or do you find that like music and entertainment and now it's requiring so many more folks, you know, that, are, you know, have these skill sets. Do you find that it has its own charms? Yeah, you know, I think, and this is purely an opinion, right, of being in the technology interest. I think B2B is actually becoming... I hate to say it, sexier. I'm throwing quotations, <laughs> but I know on the podcast, so no one can see them. But I think B2B is a lot more enticing and interesting at this point because the challenges you face are just a lot harder. The a lot of the times, like the, as a product manager, you're not able to pivot really quickly and do A/B testing because you're building such ingrained and complex problems. So, like, it's different if you're working for a retail consumer where you know you can segment. 50,000 customers from these 50,000 customers and see if a, a different checkout, you know, workflow works better versus the standard workflow checkout workflow you have today. Like, I think that becomes harder as a product manager at a B2B company where you're going to naturally have less users, but you're also going to have a lot of custom logic that's built out for that user base because you're so particularly ingrained in a niche industry. And so I think that's becoming actually fun for people because it's, it's, frankly, really challenging. And I think on the engineering side, the, the same is said. And so I, and I think COVID obviously impacted that a lot. You're seeing a lot of those B2C companies who are rapidly scaling, starting to, to pull back a little bit um, on it. And so I think it's just exposed folks more to the B2B companies where maybe they weren't looking at those before. And as they get in, they see the interesting challenges that they try to solve. Hmm. And less problems to, to do fire drills on on the weekend, right? Or holidays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Less like working the overnight shift and being on pager duty. Yeah, that's for right. sure. So, you know, we touched on this already earlier in the talk about the music business being like pretty complicated overall. Um, something that would be really hard to, to describe to someone. I think that's something that a lot of us forget. You know, those of us who've been in the industry for some years now and we think of masters and publishing and you know, live streaming and oh, this, this all makes sense because we've been around it. But to the outside person, it's quite complicated. It's not as simple as, you know, just, you know, selling shoes, you know, I sell shoes, you know, I, I sell a pair and then I get money back. It's right. just so much more complex than that. So do you find, you know, with the Orchard being at such a interesting part of the music industry, being a distribution company, um, do you find that the environment is going to get more complex over the next five to 10 years, or do you find that it's going to maybe simplify in some ways? Um, and, and if so, how? 
Yeah, you know, it's it's a really interesting question. I think the hopefully it simplifies itself with some of the things that are unmeaningly complex, like the the metadata issues, right? I think that's just because over years, folks have been super interested in getting music out there in the world. And, you know, we hadn't thought about like all the downstream consequences that come from metadata, you know, being able to do payments quicker because you can match payments and revenue quicker, being able to, you know, see if a song's played in a different country faster because they got the correct metadata on performers and assets. So I'm hoping that that becomes a lot less complex. And, and I think there's enough companies out there trying to solve that problem that it inevitably will be. So I think that's a really interesting piece to it. And, and I do think you're starting to see, um, you know, a time where artists, artist management team labels are starting to work more and more together. So I think that probably cuts down on a lot of the communication gaps that, you know, may have been there in the past. And again, it's, it's interesting for me because I'm so new to music of being in this role for only four years where a lot of the folks I'm working with have wanted to do this their whole lives. So they had the whole background of it. So I think for me, the, the hope is that it becomes more less complex in the areas that that are obviously too complex or obviously just we're kind of not focused on early on, um, but should be in the future. All right, Jacob, so cool. That's gonna uh, conclude our, our normal uh, interview part. So we're gonna move on to the speed round, uh, if that sounds good. So real quick, so this is like tweet length answers, 140 characters or less. I mean, that's, that's a loose rule. Uh, if you want to kind of go on a tangent, uh, we're, we're obviously happy to hear it. But basically, just your kind of quick take analysis on some recent music industry headlines uh, and trends. All right. Sound good? Yeah. All right, here we go. So first one is YouTube. This one's coming from uh, the Music Ally Bulletin uh, newsletter. So YouTube Music doubles down on personalization features. So they reported in September on YouTube Music testing some personalized My Mix playlists which followed uh, Spotify, Spotify's daily mix template and offering people a suite of playlists based on different genres and clusters of listening habits. And they have now launched officially. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, each uh, YouTube music user will have up to seven My Mix playlists with each quote, capturing a different corner of your music world, end quote. So YouTube also has renamed the umbrella Your Mix playlist as My Super Mix to sit on top of them. Uh, thoughts? Yeah, great one. So. I'm always a big proponent of this from a personalization strategy perspective. I think it's awesome when a streaming service can pick up your habits and then suggest music to you that you otherwise wouldn't have heard. I think this is, you know, something Spotify did really well in the beginning is why so many people gravitated towards it. It's like, for me, I know I've got my favorite, you know, bands uh, that I'm going to constantly listen to their entire album. I'm, I'm definitely an album listener over a track listener. Uh, which I don't know if aligns with my age or not, but I've been told it doesn't, although I think it does <laughs> based, based on my friend group. But that, that's, uh, so I think for YouTube to do this is pretty cool. Like when you have that data and you're using it in positive ways like that, I think it's awesome for the consumer. Cool. This next one is um, also from Music Ally. Um, and the headline is Australia now has nearly 6.7 million music streaming subscribers. So that's up from... Around 6 million in 2019 and recording revenue is also up. And I think if I'm doing my math correctly, that accounts for about a quarter of Australians. Uh, Australia's population is now a streaming subscriber. Thoughts on that? Uh, first reaction is surprised actually a little bit just because Australia is such a huge country, right? Um, but I feel like you think about it in terms of landmass, not population sometimes. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to think if I know of any services that have recently launched there that kind of contributed to that. Uh, that would be my first reaction, which I don't. So I guess interesting is my my reaction to that. Sorry, I don't have anything better for you. No, totally cool. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, cool. This next one, uh, also from Music Gallery. Riot Games wants to create a thriving music universe. So this is regarding the esports, just gigantic game League of Legends. Those who aren't familiar, um, maybe ask one of your uh, gaming kids. Uh, has even bigger ambitions around music. Quote, our main target isn't even revenue right now. It's not what we're really focused on. It's really about the impact we can create. This is from Riot Music Group boss Toa Dunn. Uh, he added that the ultimate plan is to create a thriving music universe that sits alongside the League of Legends franchise. Take a look, take this year as a look at our commitment towards our passion for creating music and where that can go in the future. This is definitely the first stop in what it will ultimately be a long road of future releases to come. End quote. Yeah, I think it's really cool when you can combine kind of music with other outlets of entertainment. I think there's always been such a an obvious crossover that no one really figured out, like it's obvious that there should be crossover in the entertainment industry. I think what wasn't obvious was how do you figure out like what that crossover should be and what's the experience for the consumer. And so I think this is probably the start of something that you'll see across the entertainment industry, not just with you know music and video games, hopefully in other areas, you already see it with film and TV with sync opportunities. But I, I'm hopeful that it's something you'll start to see more and more. Cause I think when you, you can combine those experiences, it's really powerful to a consumer. Quick tangent, uh, artists and podcasts. I, was, I just want to kind of get that in there real quick. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's it's similar, right? If you can if you can cross over on the content perspective and provide unique ways for a fan to hear kind of your voice, literally, no no pun intended, I think uh, there. <laughs> um, and in other formats, it's always really cool as a as a fan, a consumer, really anyone. And so I think MXM Tune was actually you know had a podcast as well as you know creating content from a music perspective. So that's cool. All right, this, this next one is from The Guardian. The headline is, It's the Screams of the Damned, the eerie AI world of deepfake deep music. So basically, AI is being used to create new songs that are seemingly, um, through deepfake technology, performed by, you know, dead artists or catalog artists like Frank Sinatra. Your reaction to this trend where you see it going in the future? Yeah, I think technology, there's always a place for it. And there's always, you know, going to be morals about technology, right? <laughs> to say yay or nay of whether it should happen. I think from my point of view, what's important is technology can enable creatives and can enable a lot of things to happen. What what I always go back to is like, how how am I as a consumer interacting with it? Does it feel authentic? Does it feel like something that an artist has created? Does it feel like that, you know, for me, what was always important was I went to, whether it was Intersection when I was living in Grand Rapids, you know, whether it was, I think it was Black Cat when I was in DC, it was a place I always went to, or, you know, whether it was Music Hall, Williamsburg, Bowery Ballroom, like that feeling of going to a show and seeing the authentic piece of creative content was always important to me. And I think the different segments of listeners and different age groups of listeners probably react differently. But even for someone who's heavily involved in technology and machine learning and automation, I think like for me, it's still that experience of seeing an authentic created piece of content that I'm, that I as a listener am most interested in. Makes sense. And just one final question, favorite emo band. Oh man. Oh, that one's tough. Probably 
dashboard confessional. I'd all say. Right. And I don't even know if you classify as emo, right? Like all emo, all music. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty emo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so this is actually all we got, Jacob. Is there anything you wanted to kind of touch on uh, while we have a few more minutes left here? Or plug? Yeah, or plug. Yeah, for sure. I think you guys, you know, gave me lots of awesome questions. I think the one thing I'd be interested in hearing from you is you know, what are your, what bands are you listening to the most? I think obviously through chart magic, you guys probably see a lot of cool content trending and surfacing. So what are the most recent, you know, artists that you've been listening to or, or really uh, checking out? I'm the, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Cause I have been going like deep in catalog stuff. So I haven't really listened to new music recently. What's the most recent catalog album that you're, you're really like, oh God, I remember this and I'm just going to listen to it on repeat. Well, there's one that I have been listening to on runs, um, which is Patrice Russian. Um, it, it opens with the, you know, the Men in Black theme song, the uh, Men in Black yeah. <laughs> Galaxy. So it's the actual song that that theme song was taken from. It's so good. That whole album. I'll give you that. Um, for me, I recently discovered this uh, artist, Priya Ra- uh, Raghu, I think. Uh, she's uh, she's only got one track out, but I forget how I came across her, but she's this really cool mix of just kind of like R&B and pop. Um, and also, just to add to um, the, the catalog uh, thing, I've been going over some like 90s, like electronica, like some crystal method uh, <laughs> lately. I don't know how I went down that rabbit hole, but it kind of reminds me of when I was like back in school. Um, as well as a little bit of a, the presidents of the United States of America. And I don't know if that was just because the elections were going on and it just popped in my head, but like <laughs> I went through the entire album. <laughs> it seems fitting. And, uh, and I'm definitely listening to that. We uh, did in those days when I was in a grunge band. So <laughs> Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting us, with us today, Jacob. Um, is there a way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, through the Orchard website, we've got our normal forms of contact. I always reach out there and it'll it'll get funneled to me in, in some way or some form. Awesome. Cool. All right, Jake. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it was really awesome chatting with you and uh, good luck for the rest of 2020 and looking forward to 2021. Same. Thanks, guys. See you, Jacob. Bye. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Follow our thoughts on our LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.